The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told them who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute no, becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he, is, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. So this is uh, our second week in Lent, as we mentioned earlier. And during Lent, we take some time to intentionally uh, repent. And it's a season of repentance in which we make war on the sins which uh, 
uh, still go on in our lives. That is, things that we've permitted, whether it's complacency or it's uh, a pattern of, of behavior that is immoral, uh, any, anything that we ask the Lord to reveal as sin, we war against that. And so it's helpful to understand the writings of the apostles as they apply to walking out the Christian faith. That being said, of course, we need a gospel-informed warfare. It is not enough for you to hear the gospel imperatives, that is, you must do this, without hearing the gospel indicatives, that is, this is what Christ has done for you. And so understanding that all gospel imperatives, everything that you're told you must do this, is already based on and empowered by and can only be done in the foundation of this is what Christ Jesus has done for you. And if you don't have both sides, you will not fully walk out your Christian faith. Your Christian faith has implication for your behavior. It determines the way in which you're supposed to walk. And that's why I've taken these two passages and put them together. Uh, one of them is the New Testament reading or the epistle reading for a week ahead of now, but I decided to pull it together because I think it's a nice, uh, a nice idea that Jesus Christ is describing that bodies are temples. That's one of the major ideas of today's message that we're going to look at. But I want to look at a few elements, both in the first reading and the second reading. I want to talk briefly before the readings about the purpose for a temple, for the temple that God set up. I want to explain why Jesus Christ was so zealous to clean out a dirty temple and what the temple was supposed to be for both Yahweh as in his purposes for the temple, and also what it meant to the people of Israel, or should have meant, uh, and didn't. I want to look at Jesus' judgments that are righteous and good, as he uh, decided to enact judgment in that moment, seeing the perverse things that were taking place in the temple. I want to explore why he did it, and also help you understand there was no amount of sin or, e or even a suggestion of wrong motives in what Jesus did. Although it isn't uh, comfortable, or it wasn't, it wouldn't mesh with most Jesus videos that you've seen, uh, where Jesus is kind of this starry-eyed, hippie, hair-wearing, uh, you know, guru who's walking around in sandals, which, uh, you know, they make him more to be some sort of desert wanderer than the Son of God, who is righteous and holy. And I want to, I want to say that there's absolutely nothing wrong with what Jesus did in this uh, scenario. And it, it would be uh, blasphemous to suggest otherwise. I want to look at the nature of the temple and body. That's this, my central idea today, is that what these two readings tell us about who we are as human beings with bodies, uh, likewise with what uh, being identified with what Christ has done for us in a bodily atonement. I want to look at the union with Christ that we have, that Paul talks about, that we are united with Christ, and that has implications for our understanding of the human body and the human frame. And then finally, <clears throat> I want to talk about a gospel-informed warfare that I mentioned earlier, that you absolutely have to know what Christ has done for you before you can pick up uh, where he left off, so to speak. And by that, I do not mean to suggest that there is anything lacking in the atonement of Christ Jesus. It was sufficient once and for all, as we're going to look at and mention in, uh, from Hebrews 10. But I want to say that your faith must be fleshed out, and you must continue to make war on the sins which you have already been forgiven for. Uh, there, <clears throat> there is no breaking 
the, uh, the power of sin that's already been overcome. First, God breaks the power of sin that he that, uh, has already canceled. You do not overcome sin before you're forgiven of sin. And it's only understanding that those sins have been forgiven that you could even have any hope to do so. So I want to um, get into this idea that we, if you've been at this church for any length of time, we spend a lot of time in the Old Covenant scriptures. So the idea of the temple of God shouldn't be foreign to you. Um, but I, I do want to highlight a few of the purposes. We're not going to look at any Old Testament texts, but I want to highlight a few of the purposes for the temple and what it meant for the temple to be defiled. So Yahweh, when he was setting up Israel, he did not establish a house at, at uh, the same time that they entered the land. They entered the land and he established a tabernacle and that tabernacle was able to move and it would go wherever Israel was going, and it would be in the midst of the tribes. There would be three tribes to the north, three tribes to the east, and so on and so forth. And so the tribes, 12 of them in number, being uh, encamped around the temple, highlighted the fact that the temp- or sorry, the temple, uh, tabernacle, excuse me, the tabernacle was to be the focal point of the life of Israel. The tabernacle was the interaction point between heaven and earth for them. And, and when the temple gets established, it only gets established at a, per, at a particular place and time in Israel's victory over the nations that were in Canaan. The temple was the central sa- uh, sacrifice location, both for free will offerings. That is, if, if someone wanted to come and worship Yahweh out of just simple devotion and love for the Lord, they would have come, but also for guilt. If they had sinned or swindled or deceived someone or, or uh, broken a covenant or, or lied or, or whatever they had done, they were to come and offer a guilt offering. And all of the life and worship of Israel focused around the temple. It was the focal point of their nation. The house that God established was a place on which God fixed his eyes. We, we see all of this. Uh, we don't have time to cover Second uh, Chronicles 6, but if you want to, to understand these things, Second Chronicles 6 is wonderful. Yahweh says that he's going to set his eyes on the temple and that whenever anyone in Israel would pray towards that temple, he would hear from heaven. It was a covenant-making uh, promise that God said, if, if you would use the temple in the right way, I would hear from you. And so this is, is, we're beginning to see the idea, but before he actually set a city uh, to install his name, uh, he first waited until there was a king. And that king, who we know is David, accomplished a series of military victories by which the majority of the land that Israel would ever take was, was secured. And so David is throwing out these evil and adulterous uh, idolatrous people, sorry, uh, who are corrupting the land. And God, through the nation of Israel, judges those people and expels them from the land. And only once the land is clean is the temple ready to be made. Now, all these things are just a shadow of the true substance, which is Christ. So we know concretely the reason why David wasn't able to fully defeat all the enemies in the land was to testify of the unique necessity of Jesus Christ. That is, only Jesus Christ can throw out all of those things and the the nations of the land obviously being rival philosophies and sins in our hearts. And so the idea is that God establishes a temple at the greatest 
uh, place of military faithfulness that Israel has. And David uh, sets up this scenario, yet because of his uh, sin, he is passed over, and Solomon, his son, is the one who actually builds the temple. So Solomon uh, builds the temple, and then he proceeds over the uh, inauguration of the temple, that is the dedication in which the Holy Spirit of God comes and fills. And this happens over and over again. The Holy Spirit of God fills the temple so fully that the ministers could not stand, and they fall down in, in glory. It's an amazing scene. I, I, I love reading Second Chronicles, uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing to, to utilize your God-given imagination to understand that the Holy Spirit's presence was so uh, heavy that the holiness and terrifying nature of God caused all of them to fall on their face. We see this when Jesus says, I am, when he's about to be uh, arrested, all the, the soldiers, everyone who came with a bunch of clubs and swords, everybody falls down. It's a great scene. Um, and so, God is establishing this temple uh, to be a focal point for the people of of Israel. Uh, In the temple, there was a special room for those who were not Israelites, that is, they were were Gentiles, uh, for them to come in and worship. And so there was a place where the men could go, there was a place where the women could go, there was an inner court, an outer court, and there was a special place for Gentiles to come and worship. Now, why is that? The reason that is, is because God wished for Israel to be his uh, vice regent in the world by which uh, he would transform and redeem man. And so God is intending for Israel to serve as a beacon of righteousness, a diamond on a setting of black felt, if you will. And, and Israel should shine so greatly that the nations around her would see her glory and they would come and stream toward Zion and worship the Lord. That's why there's a temple, or in the temple, there's a room for non-Israelites. That room doesn't make any sense if there's no reason, if, if that's not part of the purpose of God for his people. And therefore, the temple was not only God's throne in Israel, it was God's throne for the entire world. Through the temple in Jerusalem, it says that the law will go forth as we see fulfilled in the book of Acts. The temple was God's focal point through which he's going to redeem the world. And in the temple, we know that God has true fellowship and communion with his people. We understand that the showbread is representative both of the people's work and the faithfulness of Yahweh on blessing their land, and also that they would be faithful to make that bread present at all times in the temple. That is the faithful service of the priests receiving the faithful offerings of the people, the tithe of their grain, that bread would be continually there and it would be bread of the presence of God. And the reason, we we talked about this, uh, I think three weeks ago, the reason the bread of the presence is named as such is that bread is a signifier of God's unique place where he had promised to meet his people. And that is what the temple means and entails. We know that the Israelites completely failed in their charge of being salty and lighty. That is, they were to be a unique nation of, uh, of priests, that is, a kingdom of priests, which we see fulfilled in the church. We know that they, time and again, failed and went and played the harlot with other gods. We know that they prostituted out not only themselves, but also their children. And so we understand that the temple was not the final manifestation or unveiling of God's uh, place on which he would rule, through which he would rule the world. So they rebel and they fall from their calling of being the priestly nation. And they are 
uh, sinning. And so over and over again, we have, we have seen through the themes of exile in the Old Covenant, they are driven away from the land. In fact, there's one time where the temple's torn down, and then there's a time where the temple's rebuilt. God judges them and gives them warning after warning that they are prostituting themselves and not truly worshiping. And so over, uh, over the years, we hear prophets like Isaiah and Isaiah 1 that he, he condemns Israel for false worship. He says that... It, he receives a prophecy by which the Lord says that he hates their new moons and their Sabbath festivals, and he, he wants them to stop bringing the sacrifices, which is interesting because he says in the law that you have to continue to bring these sacrifices. What he's saying is the perversion of the worship of Yahweh has become so complete that they are not even able to do the law in any means. They can't, they, they shouldn't be coming. They're, they're, they're provoking God to anger by continuing to offer these sacrifices. And so that's the context in which Jesus is coming into this temple. He's coming into the temple because it's the Passover, and it was part of the law that every Israelite would come to the temple during the Passover, and so Jesus goes up to the Passover, verse 13 of our reading in John 2. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem because the Passover was taking place, and what he does and what he, what he sees and, there, and then does concerning what the Jews were doing with the temple is extremely uh, it's, 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 a war it's an extreme warning, but it's also extremely heartbreaking to see God's mighty call for what the temple was supposed to be and who Israel was supposed to be in the earth, and then to see what they were doing with it. And I, I gave us all that backstory about what the temple is, because if you don't understand what the temple was supposed to be, Jesus's zeal looks just like a temper tantrum. It doesn't have any, you don't have any context to understand why he's cleansing it. Rather than serving the nations that it was Israel's charge, there are currency traders who are exacting a high exchange rate on those who would be strangers and aliens. In the law, it was commanded, God told his people that they should show mercy and hospitality to strangers and aliens. But in this case, when there are people who are coming up and exchanging their money, that's what a money changer does, uh, they, are, they are oppressing these people. Now, there are some people who are what we call Hellenized Jews. That is, they were not Israelites by ethnicity, but rather they were worshipers of Yahweh because the synagogues had begun to spread uh, throughout all of, all of uh, the Mediterranean, which is what uh, I, think, I think it's Paul, it may be Peter, says in the book of Acts concerning that there, there are, pre I think it's Acts 15, there are preachers of Moses in every city, or that is the the understanding of Second Temple Judaism was more than just in the national boundaries of Israel. That is why there are people coming up who need their money exchanged in the temple. Likewise, they also are selling these animals, and it, it's from, from the context we know that they're using oppressive pricing. The doves, which God had established in the law, were for poor people. And if anything was the case, Israel should have used the proceeds from the temple offerings to provide for sacrifices for the poorest among them. But they have these guys, they're selling doves, and they're probably, from the context, extort, extorting uh, the poor. And so Jesus comes in, sees these things happening, and then decides it is time to judge. This shows the moral state of the people. They're coming to offer sacrifices to Yahweh, yet all of them are totally okay with the fact that there's this oppressive financial scheme going on in the temple. 
over and over again in the old covenant, we see occasionally God would move on the heart of a deliverer or a judge who would put things right. He would see things that are going wrong. And then he would say, this should not be the case. And then he would do something about it. We think of the book of Judges. We think of the various kings who instituted reforms. And what's happening is the people of Israel are coming to the temple and no one's doing anything about the fact that there are extorters of those who are strangers and aliens in the land. And so Jesus decides that they are only offering in hypocrisy and he throws them out. Now, I want to suggest to you that this is righteous. I I don't want to suggest, I want to say that it is righteous and good for Jesus Christ to cleanse the temple in an attempt to testify to Israel concerning her idolatry. And so he cleanses it. And then from there, he begins to testify about the death that he would face and his resurrection. The people truly do not love Yahweh as seen in the fact that they have no concern for their neighbor. He has made the evaluation and his judgment is ready. Because Jesus loves the Father and therefore the Father's word, he absolutely hates wickedness. Jesus is not uh, Jesus is not doing this because he's trying to show that the temple system is about to come to an end. He does that through his work on the cross and his resurrection. He, he is, this is not... Uh, Please do not understand this in a dispensational way. Jesus does not come into the temple as if to say that the temple was wrong the whole, the whole time. He is, he is coming into the temple to say that they are using it in the wrong way. His decision to cleanse the threshing floor this first time, he'll do it again, it's based on righteous not, righteousness, not malicious anger. It is not a requirement of Christianity for you to be a timid, mousy person. This is not just because Jesus gets angry, his righteous, zealous anger, that does not mean he sins. And so many of us have reduced Christianity to this set of subset of feelings and emotional experiences that we have no understanding for righteous indignation at idolatry. Yet the word of God commands us to adopt that view. Make absolutely no mistake, Jesus is not losing his temper But rather like Phineas, Numbers 25, he is zealous for the cleansing of God's house and the purity of his people. His judgment was right and it was timely. He did not need to wait. It was full, as in the iniquity that he saw taking place in the temple. It did not merit uh, a temporary uh, uh, complacency with the state of things. And this should tell us uh, concerning the own own sins that we see in in our lives, Some of them are worth acting on immediately. Some of them are maturity issues, which we need to grow out of, responsibility issues, which we need to overcome by maturing. But there are some things which are worth judging immediately. Not not hastily, but rightly. Zeal is not misaligned passion. Jesus did not lose his emotional cool, and therefore he flipped out. Flipping tables does not necessarily mean you're flipping out. Of course, the Jews are incensed. I I, want to suggest the reason why I'm confident in stating that Jesus did not lose his temper and that that it's not a sin of passion of what he did. Of course, Jesus Christ never committed sin. Anyone who suggests otherwise is a blasphemer. Uh, Jesus Christ did not commit sin in this instance but he also, we know clearly that he did not lose his passion. I saw a YouTube video this week, which was uh, part of my, you know, sometimes when I'm working, I, I take a little break for five minutes here or there. But I saw this video and, and a guy was demonstrating the whips that he makes because, you know, believe it or not, there are still people who deal with cattle 
Uh, you just go and get a cheeseburger, but they have to take care of the cows. And he, he is a artisan bullwhip maker. And he had this bullwhip, and it was about six feet long, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, God's world is amazing. The bullwhip, when it cracks, it's actually making a little sonic boom. And he's explaining these things, and then he's also describing how he makes his whips. And even if Jesus had a whip that wasn't on a handle with him, when this gentleman who makes his whips was taking the whip and binding it just to a handle, it took him more than five minutes to do that. Now, I want to suggest to you that Jesus sitting down, and as the, the text says, uh, fashioning or braiding a cord of strands into a whip was going to take a few minutes. This is not like coming home and beating your wife out of passion. This is, not, this is not Jesus arriving drunk in his home and losing his temper. This is a decisive judgment in which it was premeditated and it was right. He took some time to fashion the cords. And so we understand that he's not losing his temper. I just wanted to uh, give that anecdotally really quickly. But the Jews are incensed. We see this over and again. Jesus commits uh, an act of judgment. He, he says something that shows their hypocrisy, and the Jews are incensed. They are angered. And so he sa- they say to him, what sign do you do to show that you have authority to cleanse the temple? And he says to them that he will do a sign, but it's not immediately present. Through the events, they have been accused of using false weights and measures and committing false worship. We know that to be the case because they're exchanging money and they're getting an an income off of this money exchanging that is such an overly oppressive level that it's worth judging. Now, I don't know about you. uh, there, There are financial... Uh, schemes today which are are wrong, and then there are financial things which are totally permissible and okay. Clearly, whatever is happening here is not a foreign exchange kind of thing. This is much more oppressive than anything could be, uh, than any than you could construe a typical financial market. It's not just a foreign exchange rate. It's something much worse than that. These people are are using false weights and measures, and they are also committing false worship, which, if you understand the law, is demonstrating that they are breakers of the law, even as if they're trying to go worship Yahweh at the, the celebration festival. So he then says to them a sign that he will do, although he says it in a parabolic way, that is a parable. He says that if this is the sign I perform, The sign that I perform is that you will tear down this temple and in three days I will rise it up. And they completely miss what he's saying. But what Jesus says concerning the temple gives us great understanding of the nature of the human body. Jesus says that he'll show them the sign and through his parable, Christ shows us the nature of the substance of the symbol. That is the symbol is just the temple. The temple is not the substance. The substance behind the temple or the substance behind the symbol, is Christ himself. The temple of God was the place in which a putting-off atonement would be made. But that was merely a symbol of the true atonement to be made once and for all. If you have never understood that idea, Hebrews 10, I beg you, read it, consider what it's talking about. The temple of Israel is never going to be established again. The reason for that is that there was a sacrifice made once for all, and that sacrifice was Christ Jesus. The true temple is not a building, but a body because Christ tabernacled among men, as John tells us at the beginning of his gospel. Jesus Christ, in his 
uh, coming and dwelling in the midst of the people. The word there is more appropriately translated instead of dwelling as tabernacling or tenting or indwelling. Christ is the indwelling God in man. And understanding that, we see his sacrifice, which was done bodily, as something much more than just dying in our place. It's, it's, it is that, but it's much more than that. It's not as if he just redeemed you as, other, as any other human could exchange uh, them, uh, th- their place, your place for their place. As in, it's not as if you were uh, commissioned to go off and do this journey to Antarctica or something, and it's a penalty for you, and someone else says that they'll go. That would be wonderful, but what is more wonderful is that it is God incarnate who is doing that in your place. So we come to the epistle. Paul is speaking to a group of Christians. I want you to understand that. When you read the epistles and you hear Paul saying to put away sin or, or any of the other epistles saying to war against sin, that is not written to the world. The epistles were written to churches and therefore they're applicable to you. It is not enough that you would be a, become a Christian in name only. You must begin to war against your sin. Paul rebukes the church at Corinth for their mixture and false worship. He says over and over again in this passage, do you not know? He, what he's accusing them of, of doing is acting in a way that belies or contradicts what they claim to know in their heads and in their hearts. Some of those who Christ has died to redeem are living as if they have no knowledge of God nor his law. At the beginning of our reading in 1 Corinthians 6 today, he lists a group of people or descriptions, types of people, and those descriptions are from the law. He warns them not to be self-deluded, supposing that because they know the facts of God's salvation, that they are actually saved themselves. It is not enough for you to know intellectually that Jesus Christ died for the sins of man. That is, that is knowledge that everyone has in our culture. There, there are few in America who do not know that fact of Christianity, but almost none of them walk accordingly. And so Paul is saying, are you ignorant of these things? Because the way that you're living contradicts what we understand Christ to have done in his bodily death. Paul's lists of sins here are not an arbitrary category. This is not like Paul saying, these are things that tick me off and I'm going to write a letter and include some of my, the personal pet peeves. If this were me and I was having to write 1 Corinthians, I would say those who leave the light on after they go to bed or those who you know don't replace uh, the toilet paper after, you know, using the last part of the roll. That would be the things that are my pet peeves. Paul's not talking about his pet peeves. Paul is talking about a category from Deuteronomy. That is, these are people who break God's law. They're not just people who are misguided and they have some wrong character issues or some sort of personality difference with Paul. These are people who are breaking God's law. Those who break God's law, Paul says, are excluded from the kingdom, both present and future. We talked about how Jesus Christ at the transfiguration describes the kingdom of God coming when the judgment comes on the nation of Israel in 70 AD. And although I only have brief, a brief amount of time to mention that, uh, it's, it's helpful to understand that the kingdom of God is both now and future. That is, the kingdom of God, uh, in the proper understanding of Christianity, does also refer to the future. But it, it came when Jesus Christ 
uh, judge the nation of Israel. He said the kingdom of God is at hand, and then at the transfiguration, he says that you will see the Son of Man coming again on the clouds and bringing the kingdom. It's not something that we're waiting for. It's here and coming. It's, it's kind of like uh, if you think of a continuum, there's a distance between zero to one, and we're somewhere between there. And so Paul is not just saying that these people won't get into heaven. He's saying that these people are not even in the kingdom now. If they're living in such a way as to be rightly called a drunkard, a reviler, a swindler. And the reason we know that they're not in the kingdom is because he says to them, and such were some of you. Past tense verb that describes what the Corinthians were saved out of. And what he's saying is going back and participating in those sins as if they have no knowledge of what they were redeemed for demonstrates a crisis of faith. They must come to know what is the call of God for their purity and holiness before him. He warns them not to forget their baptism, that they were washed for the remission of their sins, that they were justified, that is, declared guiltless, and that they were sanctified, that is, set apart for, for God himself through, the, through both Christ and the Holy Spirit. How can those who have been washed from those things go on so as to live in them? That's what Paul is basically saying. He's saying, how can you, after being uh, redeemed by God, after being pulled out of that lifestyle, out of that sin which entangled you, and then washed through the waters of baptism, justified by faith, and also sanctified by the Holy Spirit, how can you go back to that? And he then gives us a reason why. They go back to that. And it's all found in, do you not know? The lack of understanding that you have concerning what your destiny is to live in holiness and righteousness before God is one of the chief reasons in this text for going and living as if you have never been called. The union that we have with Christ is not spiritual alone. So many people have, have taken Christianity and they've thrown it into the spiritual realm and they don't allow it to have any implication for the natural realm, as if there was some sort of twofold nature of the world. The spiritual and the natural are connected. And what Paul says is the union that we have with Christ has implications for our bodies. This is not a Gnostic religion. This is not mysticism. This is real. Therefore, taking that which is united to Christ and making it one with a prostitute is absurd. You were bought with a price. Your body has been purchased by, by Christ. If the nature of spiritual and physical were divorced, then God would have done a spiritual forgiveness alone. But we know that it took a bodily atonement and death. It, it wasn't as if God just kind of stood outside of the world and looked upon it and said, I'm just going to forgive them. Because of the way that reality is, in the way, and, and that reality reflects God's true nature, he considered a bodily death necessary for the atonement and redemption of humankind. That's why sexual temptation is so dangerous. During this time in Lent, you are, are possibly focused on various sins, and although Paul only references sexual temptation and, and uh, immorality in this passage, I want to say that it goes beyond that. And this zeal, which I'm hoping you'll kind of get a glimpse of, should uh, be the way in which you war against all sin, not just sexual temptation, though that is a great area of need in our culture today. 
we are the most sexualized culture that I have ever understood to exist on the earth, possibly aside from Babylon or Sodom and Gomorrah. And that understanding that not having a theology of a bodily redemption is so uh, tragic. That's why I say uh, these things today. This is why sexual temptation is so dangerous and why sexual sin is so treacherous. It's treachery to sin sexually as a redeemed believer. And the reason I call it treachery is not to shame you, but so that you would have ammo in your fight against temptation. If you understand that Christ Jesus died a bodily death for the purity and redemption of your body, then you have much more ammo than if you do not understand it. It's a denial of Christ's incarnation and his bodily resurrection, which was done unto the redemption of your body, your physical frame. This is why, as human beings, we understand a bodily resurrection. Uh, sorry, not human beings. As Christians, we focus on a bodily resurrection. Again, so much of Christian faith in America has, has relegated itself to uh, a pie in the sky, uh, going to heaven when you die mentality. I, I probably need to, I've referenced this a few times, but the Philadelphia tr cream cheese commercial, if you haven't seen it, I probably should just bring it in and play it because it's so important to understand the popular conception of Christianity is where do you go when you die? And that, that's it. And so in the culture, we have this idea that, oh, well, we'll go up to heaven and there will be pearly gates and Peter will be there. I don't know why he's there. Um, it's not scriptural. Um, he's got the keys, yeah. Well, so do we. But uh, that's, that's not here or there. We've got the keys too. So Peter's there and you, know, you show up and you kind of waft. You're a spiritual airy being and then you know, you're on clouds and golden harps and all these things. I, I wanna suggest that heaven is a real place and that we do go to be with the Lord when we die. Paul makes it clear to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. I am not by any means dismissing the great hope of heaven. But I want to say that Christianity is more about a bodily resurrection than it is about dying and going to heaven after your death. And that's why it's found in the creed that we believe in a resurrection from the dead. Uh, you do go to be with the Lord, but that's not what the end goal of Christianity is. The end goal of Christianity is that G through Jesus Christ, he being the firstborn from the dead, God would at the last day raise up all in the world, and then by Jesus Christ will judge all mankind. Those who are righteous will live with him forever in a heavenly glorious body, which will be real, not ethereal. It is. This is not a Gnostic religion. And so you understanding that, that that's your destiny, that is mighty amounts of warfare and munitions in the fight uh, against sin. You have a destiny that you will, in your flesh, see God. And that gives you, knowing that that's where you're going, make war on your sin now. Don't put it off until a future day where you'll be present with the Lord. Christ comes to take on the human frame that he would atone and redeem it, and so that the Spirit of God would be able to reside in our hearts. That is, the Holy Spirit resides in our bodies, and that is not a spiritual idea. That's a spiritual meeting natural. And so, Jesus Christ accomplishes this redemption for a purpose. We know from uh, a, a meta-narrative of the Scripture, we see the Holy Spirit hovering at the beginning He's hovering, and like Noah, who sends out the pigeon or the dove, excuse me, um, 
<clears throat> that dove returns. He has nowhere to land. The Holy Spirit, because of what Christ has done, has a place in which to dwell, and that is you, your body. Paul doesn't tell the Corinthians these things to condemn them, but that they would use this as this understanding as ammo in their war against the temptations of the enemy. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Make war on your sin this Lent by submitting your heart to the fear of the Lord and ask God for the same zeal that he has for you to be the zeal that you have for his holiness and righteousness. It is not enough for you to war on your sin thinking that it's just you in the game. God is jealous for you. As James says, he is jealous for the spirit which he has made to reside in you. The deposit which God has given you, as Ephesians talks about it, it is a deposit on the future things which we will inherit. It's a down payment and the rest of the mortgage is coming. That is, he bought the house and he's going to get it. That's your destiny as a Christian. Why waste any time engaging spiritual temptation and permitting that, uh, sorry, sexual temptation, and permitting that to go on in your life? Put an end to it. You were bought with a price. The glorification of the temple of old, that is what we talked about with Solomon, that glorification when it was dedicated, when God came, was the filling of that temple by the Holy Spirit. Likewise, it is the same in the new covenant both, uh, both Christ as the true sacrifice, the, the true temple who tabernacled among men and now has opened up a way for you to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, commands that you live in step with the Spirit. To walk according to the flesh, as Paul says, is to die. But to walk according to the Spirit is life and peace. The glorification of the new temple in the new covenant is that the Holy Spirit would again come and fill and dwell. Christ still cleanses temples today. That's why we focus on the Gospels so much. Jesus Christ did not cleanse a temple 2,000 years ago and then say, I'm done. Christ is still zealous, and the zeal that he has abides. It does not diminish. Your zeal, my zeal, it waxes and wanes. Like the phases of a moon, it's inconsistent, though it's almost guaranteed. We're going to wane. We're going to wax. We will grow and uh, uh, regress in our love for the Lord from time to time. But the reason why is because we are turning to focus on our own zeal, our own effort. Understanding that God has ample grace for you, you can take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and slay the sin which remains in your life. That's what gospel-informed warfare is. It is not enough to know that your destiny is to be with the Lord and think that you need to get there on your own. The Holy Spirit is jealous for you and he wants to dwell in you. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that we would be a people indwelt by your spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would deliver us from all temptation, but also, Lord, that you would give us uh, mighty uh, ammo in our in our lives, that we would have a wonderful understanding that you came to redeem us and you didn't come to just redeem our souls. You came to redeem us as people, as real bodies, corporeal persons. Lord, we ask that you would give us an ability to walk in holiness and righteousness before you, that we would know the joy of loving righteousness and hating wickedness. We ask you, Lord, to deliver us from the delusion of passivity that that uh, 
that strips us, Lord, of our power and our zeal. We ask you, Lord, that you would give us a righteous indignation against the sin which entangles. And Lord, also help us to rightly order it, that it would be founded on the work of Christ. Father, we ask that this week you would give us times where we overcome temptation and that that would be a greater joy and a greater affection which would push out everything else. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.